you look marvelous. You guys are all dressed up. Didn't even hardly recognize you. Hey, uh, the good news is this is the last of three services, so I have no time limit. So <laughs> hope you're comfortable. Anyway, hey, there is a tradition in the church uh, that when the person leading uh, the service, whether it's the priest, the pastor, uh, whoever is leading in the, uh, the liturgy, there are certain phrases that they say, and the congregation is kind of conditioned to say it back. So Meg said, this is the word of the Lord. You say, thanks be to God. So let's try it. This is the word of the Lord. Sure. Or if I were to say God is good, you would say, and all the time. Yeah, one more time. God is good and all the time. And if I were to say to you, he is risen, you would say, he is risen. Yeah. So the question really isn't whether we know the right response. The truth is we can just be conditioned. We can be trained to say the right words at the right time. But it really doesn't mean much unless those words actually sink deep into our spirit. I had this... uh, unexpected conversation with Penny. Uh, Penny is on staff here at Grace. She's one of our mentoring pastors. Uh, She's been walking with Jesus for a long time. I'm not saying that she's old. I'm just saying that she's been walking with Jesus for a long time. Uh, But she stopped in the parking lot after the Seder meal. How many of you were here for the Seder experience? It was really fun. One of my favorite things to do. I encourage you uh, next year to to come to that. It's just it's amazing to see Uh, all of the ways that points to Jesus. But uh, Penny stopped in her car and she just said to me, uh, I just still can't believe it. And it wasn't an expression of disbelief, an expression of a lack of faith. It was an expression of wonder. And she was talking about sitting through a service like that and thinking about Jesus and, and, and the story of Easter. And here's a person who's walked with Jesus for all these years. Somehow I feel like I'm slamming her. Sorry, Penny. I love you. All these years and years and years. (laughs) That's not my point. My point is, after walking with Jesus, she's still in awe of Easter. And so we can say he is risen. He is risen indeed. But my encouragement to you uh, is to hear it as if it's for the first time, to allow it to rock you, to shake you. Uh, We went to dinner Friday night afterwards and I was sitting in a little Mexican restaurant and there was a crucifix hanging uh, in the back of the restaurant and I was just sitting there thinking what an incredible story right I say this to you guys all the time but familiarity breeds complacency when a story becomes so familiar that we just tell it and don't really think about it then we become complacent we take it for granted and Easter Christmas those stories all the stories of scripture even the story we're going to talk about in a few minutes Man, you have to like be purposeful in saying, how do I keep this from becoming complacent in my spirit? So, so my encouragement to you this Easter is let's just make sure we don't know the right response, but that we allow the response to bring about transformation. Can we do that? Yeah. All right. So we are starting a series today. Uh, the series is called Hope Restored, and uh, I'm hoping to set some theological foundation for the entire series today. I know that... Um, I can't answer every question when it comes to uh, how we are to navigate through life with hope, but what I'm really uh, hoping for is that you will be inspired to come back for the next few weeks. This is going to be a five-week series on hope, and the premise is that we have the promised power of God in our lives that says we can experience joy, we can experience hope regardless of what life throws at us. Let me say that one more time. We have the promised power of God in our lives that we can experience joy, we can experience hope regardless 
of what life throws at us. And that's really the Easter story. The Easter story is a story of, of hope restored. Let me just pray for a moment. Lord, I just thank you for the series that you've given us. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the Easter story and how it is a story of hope. I pray that you would guide my words for these next few minutes. I pray that we would hear something, each one of us, uh, that will penetrate into our hearts, that will be a seed that, that, that grows up and bears fruit a hundredfold. I pray that we would leave different than we came because we've sat in the presence of the living God. May none of us be satisfied with checking a box that we did church. Uh, we went to church on Easter, we're good. That, that wouldn't be the case, that we would know that this is just an opportunity to, to hang out with you and to learn from your spirit. So spirit, I pray that you would move in a powerful way. Amen? All right. So part of this series requires um, that we just get honest with ourselves. It requires uh, that we kind of accept the fact that in this life, with all of the chaos around us, uh, we are all going to go through seasons of difficulty, right? We are all going to have times in our lives where hope is sort of fleeting, where it's hard to find our hope. Proverbs 13, 12 is kind of a foundational verse for us that becomes what we're shaping this whole uh, series after. But Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that hope deferred is just anytime you have a desire for something, or maybe you even have a desire that something not happen. Anytime you have a deep longing, anytime you have a dream, anytime you, you really want something, or you have a perception of how something is going to transpire or how it's going to go, all of that becomes a hope that you build in yourself. And anytime it doesn't happen, or the pastor says hope deferred, it makes the heart sick. It's what I call heart sickness. And we all are susceptible to heart sickness. I would say it's absolutely unavoidable. It can be the results of, of dreams never realized. It could be because of a death of someone you're close to, one of your loved ones. It could be because of a difficult or uh, a broken marriage. It could be because of a wayward child. It could be because the job that you have isn't the job you always thought it would be, and it just has left you sort of in some ways hopeless. It could be a loss of a job. It could be a rift between a you and a close friend. And those are kind of the things that I would call the, the catastrophic things. It really kind of hit us hard and, and knock us off of our feet. But I actually think part of what chips away at our hope are the little things. It could be a traffic jam, right? It could be that when you get home, your ham is burnt. You had big plans for this great meal with the family, but it's not working out the way that you thought. It would have been something you were hoping for. And you would say, well, it's not that big a deal. But those little things, it could be the fact that the dog ate your favorite pair of shoes and you were planning to wear them on date night. And now you're all messed up. And it doesn't, those things can chip away at hope in a way that the catastrophic things can too. But what we need to just realize is there's all kinds of things that are, are, are chasing after us and, and attacking our sense of hope. So we have to at least be honest with that. This is a non-scientific observation. It's just my observation of, of working with people over the, the several years that I've been doing this. Uh, we tend to respond to our hopelessness in a few different ways. The first way I see is, is just denial. So I talk to people that have great trauma in their lives, and they just say, I'm fine, everything's fine, it's no big deal, I have a good life, it's no big deal. They just sort of like press it down, put it out of their minds. It's sort of a coping mechanism of just pretending like it didn't happen or even convincing themselves it didn't happen. So denial is one possible way to deal with heart sickness. The second one is just to shut down emotionally. 
If you never desire anything, then you're never going to be disappointed that it didn't come. So some people have experienced so much disappointment that they have shut off their their desire for anything else. They say to themselves, well, if I don't want it, I'm not going to be disappointed if I don't get it. And so then we become flatlined. We just, we don't feel anything. We don't desire anything. We don't want for anything. And that's not what God has for us. But then there's this third option, an option that I would call a 360 perspective that allows us to have these disappointments. And and what I don't want to communicate is here's the fix for your circumstances. What I want to communicate through this message is that you can be in the middle of a difficult situation and still have hope. And we see that through this 360 perspective. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But there is a treatment for heart sickness. So a necessary foundation, like I said, is honesty. We say here at Grace that we want to be a church without curtains. And what do we mean when we say that? We say we want to be an honest church. We want to be a church where you can express where you are honestly. If you are struggling with God, if you are mad at God, if God doesn't make sense to you, or if God is so close and you're having the greatest time of your life, we want you to be expressed. Anything you feel along that continuum, even if what you're expressing is, I'm not sure I even believe in God. If that's where you honestly are, we want to be a church where you can say that and not feel any sense of shame or judgment because we all are in different places at different times in our lives. So so we want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church where we can just be honest. And part of that even just comes out of my own upbringing. I grew up in a praise the Lord church. I don't know if any of you even know what that is, but if you do, then you're with me. Uh, So in my growing up as a kid, no matter what you said, the right response was, That's right. You could literally walk into church and say, hey, my car just blew up in the parking lot. And somebody would say, well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You could have your arms severed from your body and come in and like, my arms, my arms. Oh, well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Right? My kid is is struggling with with drugs. Oh, praise the Lord. It sounds crazy, but that's what I grew up with. And, And there was something missing in that as I watched, as I observed as a kid. Like, we're not really being honest with each other. Hey, I know what the Bible says. I know Thessalonians tells us that in everything give praise. So it's not that what we're saying is wrong. It's just not very sensitive. And usually when we say that, or let's say somebody's going through a difficult season and they come and talk to you and say, hey, we're, we're really struggling in our marriage. And you say, well, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Are you helping them? No. And they probably know that verse. If they've hung around the church, it's been quoted on top of them enough times that they know that. What they really need is for you to be with them in their struggle and not try to fix their struggle. And too often in the Christian world, we just want to give a nice, pretty verse that fixes the problem so that we can move on because we don't want to be uncomfortable with your being uncomfortable. So we're just giving you something like a salve. Hey, here you go. All things work together for good. Can I just tell you people, just don't. It's not that it isn't true. It just isn't caring. We are called to bear one another's burdens. So we want to be a church without curtains. We want to be a a place where we can be honest with one another. And this series actually requires that we start with that foundation. There is a biblical discipline in the Bible called lament. To lament is to passionately express real disappointment, sorrow, or grief. How many of you have been disappointed somewhere in your life? Come on. We're a church without curtains, remember? I just told you that. Right? disappointment, sorrow. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have sorrow. He also said, take heart. I've overcome the world. That is the Easter story. But what he's saying is, look, 
you're going to have difficulties. So let's start with the realization that we have difficulties. And then we just need to realize that this heart sickness described in Proverbs is not a sign of weakness or spiritual immaturity. Let me say that again. If you experience heart sickness, it is not a sign of weakness or spiritual immaturity. And if you go there right away, then you're already in the weeds and you don't have the capability of moving out of the pain because you've convinced yourself there's something wrong with me. All of the heroes of the faith went through seasons of disappointment and heart sickness. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that every single hero of the faith had to navigate through very difficult seasons of time and difficult attitudes and, and ways they were responding to those difficult times. We see this throughout the Psalms, and we're going to look at one particular Psalm as a way of bringing this forward today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 42. We're actually going to look at Psalm 42 and 43. In the oldest manuscripts, this is just one psalm. And actually, if you read them together, you begin to realize it's really just uh, one writing. And I'm not sure why they ever pulled them apart, but I would say they belong as one psalm. Uh, but Psalm 42 is written by King David. You guys remember who King David is? He's Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson. Why would I bring that up? Because we just finished studying the book of Ruth yes, last week. Uh, if you weren't here, uh, Pastor G was on fire last week. It was one of the best messages. Uh, honestly, it's one of the best messages I think I've ever heard on God's love. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to get that one. Uh, if you're a CD person, I'm not even sure that I have anything in my life that would play a CD anymore, but you can download it, you can podcast it, you can get it in many different formats. But that is a, a message you should have whenever you are bumping into the difficult situation because he just does such a great job of, of expressing God's love for us and talking about God's love. It's just, it's one that you should have with you. I'll touch on that just a little bit later. I'm a little bit ahead of myself here, but uh, powerful, powerful message. We're really blessed to have Pastor G, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. All right, so let me just give you a little context before we jump into this psalm. Uh, this is an incredibly difficult time in David's life, King David. So his son Absalom has turned on him. His son has actually taken over the palace, is sitting on David's throne. He's taken over David's army, and, or at least a good portion of the army. And David is now on the run, and his son is trying to kill him. This is one of those stories I could say all that. And we could be like, oh, that's really interesting. It's more than interesting. It's tragic. Imagine a son... Turning on his father, imagine your child turning on you and actually trying to kill you, but not only sitting in your position of power, but also publicly humiliating you to your entire kingdom. There is this, this picture of, uh, it's just, it's horrific what's happening to David. And David would have expected God to protect his throne. As a matter of fact, if he were to, to read all the prophecies that were spoken over him, it was that his kingdom would last forever. And he would have been asking questions like, what are you doing? Come on, God, that's not what you said you were going to do. Why is this happening to me? David would have been in this, this deep feelings of betrayal and bewilderment, God bless you, and confusion and hopelessness, right? And, but that makes sense. What I want you to see is that's a very predictable, understandable response. When your son tries to kill you and drives you out of your kingdom, and humiliates you in front of all of your people, it makes sense that you would be disappointed, bewildered. So that's the context of David writing the psalm. That's his hope deferred. Make sense? 
Psalm 42, it says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, some of your translations say, as the deer pants for water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So we're going to stop right there. I'm going to come back and unpack the rest of the psalm, so just keep it open there. But, but it starts with this picture of David who has experienced tragedy. And here's the deal. When we go through a difficult situation, and I hear this often when I sit with people and I've experienced it in my own life, one of our first responses is, where are you, God? I don't feel you. I don't see you. I can't hear you, and this is not what I thought life was going to be. God feels far, far away. In the immediate wake of difficult circumstances, of hope deferred, of heart sickness, God will seem far away. And David actually says, my soul thirsts for you. I am like a man in the desert who hasn't had any water, and all I want is just a drop of water on my tongue. All I want is to experience a little bit of you, God. I am desperate for you, like a deer pants for water. So my soul longs for you. And when he talks about soul, we just need to understand, I think we have a misconception of soul. So when we read the word soul, we think of this mysterious thingamagooby inside of us. That's a very uh, scientific word, thingamagooby. Uh, This thing inside of us that's kind of where our spirit hangs out. And when we die, our soul goes to heaven, right? That's kind of how we would, if somebody said to describe the soul, you would struggle to describe it, but it would be something like that. It's just this thing, right? But in the Old Testament, when they talk about soul, they're talking about their very being, everything about them, their their passions, their appetite, their emotions, everything that makes me who I am is the, the Old Testament word soul. So when David writes, my soul longs for you, he's saying, everything that I am, everything that I believe, everything that I want, my entire person thirsts for the living God. It's a beautiful picture. He says, my tears are my food, and my tears say to me all day long, where is your God? That's a vivid picture, isn't it? You can feel David's hope deferred. You can feel his heart sickness. He's either crazy or he's having this beautiful picture of of inner dialogue. I don't think his tears were actually saying anything to him. But what he's saying is, as I cry, it just reminds me that God seems far away. My tears are a constant reminder that that I don't understand all that's going on. This whole psalm is just this beautiful picture of talking to God and talking to himself. It's his inner dialogue. I say this all the time, but no one talks to you more than you. So you better pay attention to what you're saying to yourself right? There is an inner dialogue that's going on every day, and your self-talk matters. The Psalms are full of self-talk. This Psalm particularly is a Psalm of self-talk. It's directed towards God, but it's also directed right towards himself. It's important. 
So the first place we have to get to is just this place of self-awareness, of, of honesty. What is it that I'm feeling? Why am I in this position? What is going on inside of me? And then we have to have this intentionality of lifting our eyes off of our circumstances and having what I call a 360 perspective. Now, here's what I want you to hear. You don't get to just lift your eyes off of circumstances and like that, the circumstances go away. That's not what's going on in this psalm. David doesn't forget what's happening to him, but at the same time that he knows all that's going on, he begins to broaden his perspective in two different directions. Look at it. In verse four, he says, these things I remember, I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. I remember times of worship is what he says. I remember going to the temple with the people. I remember your presence when I was in the temple. I remember who you are, God. So he lifts his eyes off of the immediate circumstances and he looks back and he sees all that God has done. He remembers who God had. This practice of remembering is such an important part of, of biblical uh, of disciplines, of, of walking with God over and over. The people of God are told to remember. Why? Because as they remember who God was, they will begin to see who God is and what God is going to do. That's why we take communion. Every time you do this, remember. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. The, the people of Israel, remember how I saved you with my outstretched arm. We did that Seder experience. It was an entire meal built around remembering. Why? Because when we lift our eyes out of our circumstances and remember who God is, it begins to restore our hope. Verse 5. David engages in an even more inner dialogue and he begins to ask himself this question. And then he repeats the question in verse 11. And then he repeats the question again in, verse, in chapter 43, verse five. That's why I think these are all connected. You can see this repeating phrase three times. And I'm gonna read it in all three cases just so you can see it and feel the repetitiveness of it. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember. Verse 11, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. 43.5, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Why are you cast down? It's a valid question. David actually looks into his very being and he says, what's your problem? Right? Why are you so downcast? I think what he's saying is, what are you putting your hope in? Because you need to put your hope in God. Right? He's saying, why are you so messed up? Put your hope in God. Three times he has to remind himself to put his hope in God. The question is, what's raging for your hope? What is raging against your, your ability to have hope right now? What's going on in your life that's just attacking your ability to have hope? And you can say to yourself, this is what I'm really going through. I need to, this is the self-talk we all need to have. I need to Put my hope in God. I need to intentionally look to God as the source of my hope. And here's the problem. Anytime we put our hope in anything other than God, we will be left wanting. 
You get that? Anytime you put your hope in anything other than God, you will be left in a mess. So if you say to yourself, why are you so downcast? Put your hope in your spouse. You're going to be left disappointed. Why are you so downcast? Put your hope in some financial windfall. Oh, then things will be better. Then, then I can have hope. Hear me, church. Why are you so downcast? Put your hope in a politician. You will be disappointed. I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on. If your hope is in our political system, you are in desperate trouble. It doesn't say put your hope in politics. It says put your hope in God. There is no other place that we can go for a true sense of hope in the midst of our difficulties. And we could fill this in with so many different things. This is what it means to be an idle factory. We can put our hope in so many other places. You can even say, why are you so downcast? Put your hope in self. You can put your hope in your business. Put your hope in, you can come up with whatever it is. The only source of hope that is going to carry you through the difficulty is hope in God. And David knows it, so he says these amazing words. Look at verse 8. He says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and his night his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. We spent a lot of time over the last four weeks talking about this thing called steadfast love. What's the word? Do you know? Good. You were paying attention. It's good. The word is chesed. It's that you got to say it from your throat and spit on your friend, right? Chesed. And it's God, whenever you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, 247 times, that was a big part of G's message last week. Again, I just encourage you to get it. But it's this picture of radical, extraordinary, uncommon, unpredictable, we would even say sometimes reckless love. Kased is the way God loves us. And the, the Trinity is flowing and, and overflowing with cassette. It's this beautiful picture of, of how much God loves us. And David knows it. And he says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, his cassette. Look what he's, he's saying. He's saying, God, even though I'm in a difficult situation, I'm going to lift my eyes. I'm going to remember who you were. And I am going to recognize that you are abounding in steadfast love. Even though I am in difficulty, I know that you are abounding in chesed. I want to point out a couple more observations just about the psalm, things that I've, I've seen as I've just sat with this all week. David's hope comes when he intentionally expands his perspective. It comes when he, when he looks at his past and he looks at his future, when he sees all of his surroundings. But there is, uh, in my mind's eye, there is this picture of having to get out of the immediate. When we go through a difficult situation, sometimes all we can think about is the pain that we're in. All we can think about is the disappointment we're feeling. All It takes intentionality not to say I'm going to ignore it, because that doesn't work, not to deny it, but to lift your eyes, and at the same time you feel all the weight of that, you have this ability to look back and to look forward at all that God is doing. The second observation that I just want to make, and, and again, you can go and read this story, but it doesn't get better. David does not say, why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul, your circumstances are going to change soon. Otherwise, his hope would be in circumstances. But his hope isn't in circumstances. The circumstances get worse. I know we like fairy tale endings, but this is a rough story. Go read it. It's, it's Second Samuel again. Just, just, just go read the story this week, and it's tragic. It doesn't get better. 
but David still has hope. In the midst of all of that trauma, David has great hope in God. It really is the kind of the, the, the premise of the entire psalm that there is this, this tension of, of being able to be in, in more than one place at the same time, of, of being disoriented and oriented at the same time, of being grieving and grieving with hope at the same time. You can be angry and you can be uh, gentle at the same time. You, it's this part of what God has made us. There is this picture of, and throughout the Psalms of just this chaos that can be part of life, but we can navigate it. David knows about God's steadfast love. He knows that we were created in Kesed. We are created in God's overflowing, audacious love. But the fact of the matter is, even though that's how we were created, God gave us free will. I think it's amazing when you read all of the theologians who debate about free will, and I don't get what the, what the problem is with free will. I don't get why we even have a debate about it, because it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you guys got to meet Meg. She read the passage, but um, if I had fallen in love with Meg and she didn't particularly like me, um, that would have been tragic, but if I had fallen in love with her and because of some sort of power I had, of positional power, and I had made her marry me, or if I made her live with me, if I made her submit to me, if I made her serve me, because I love her, I want to be with her, and so I make her do what I want her to do, would that be love? No. None of us would think that was love. We would think it were slavery, or we would think it was uh, just, I mean, we, we put all kinds of words, but it would be abuse, right? It would be coercion. Even, even if it's not that, that strongly put, anytime I coerce somebody to do what I want them to do, it's not love, it's coercion. And so we recognize that in a, in a, in a human relationship. Why do we have such a trouble understanding it in God's relationship? God created us in love. God created us in cassette, and cassette requires reciprocity. And so we have the opportunity to give that love back to God, but we have to have the opportunity not to give it back to God. Otherwise, we are not giving it out of our free will, and we don't. We all choose something else. We put our hope in everything but God. The scriptures say everyone does it. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. So the question that's asked is, what difference does Easter make for our hope? And I would say what you believe about Easter, what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus affects every part of your life. Because the resurrection becomes the very lens by which you look back at what God has done and you look forward to what God is doing. It's the resurrection that informs us and tells us about God's cassette. You know what Jesus said? He said, I came to show you how much the Father loves you. I came to be a demonstration of cassette. Even though you were enemies of God, even though you rejected God, even though you put your hope in anything but God, Jesus came as a man, walked the earth, sacrificed his life, was buried and rose again so that you could be in right relationship and in a loving relationship with God. That's the Easter story. That's the lens of which we lift our eyes, not to get rid of our circumstances, but to navigate through our circumstances and see all that God has done and see all that God is doing. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And we're going to close with a song, but I want to give you one more 
passage of scripture that just helps to bring this around and helps us to understand that Jesus is speaking. This is near the very end of your scriptures, Revelation 21. I think there's only one more chapter after this one. So we know it's near the end of, uh, of the story that's being told. But Revelation 21.5, Jesus himself, the one who's sitting uh, in heaven, is the one who's talking. And he says these words, behold, I am making all things new. It's a present tense passage. Jesus is reconciling all things right now. Behold, I am right now in the process of making all things new. This is so important that Jesus actually says, take out your cell phones, open up your notes, and write it down. He didn't actually say that. As G would say, that's my paraphrase, right? But if we had cell phones, that's what he would have said. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. What words are trustworthy and true? Behold, I am making all things new. That's the truth that allows us to lift our eyes out of our circumstances and have hope regardless of what life throws at you. Behold, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. So there are two groups of people in the room that I just want to give voice to. Some of you, uh, maybe you're even just visiting and you didn't know what you were getting into uh, walking in here, uh, but you know your life is a mess. And you know, even as you sit there, that you need Jesus, that you've put your hope in all kinds of things and it ain't getting it done. And the hope that you put it in may even be good things like your marriage, like your children, but it's left you wanting. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. And I can tell you, if you are that person, God is inviting you to say yes to Jesus. To just say, my life is not working the way I'm doing it. Would you be my Lord and Savior? Would you help me to navigate life? I want to put my hope in God. It's really that simple. And can I tell you, that prayer will change your life. And there's a whole bunch of us, myself included, that just know, as you've heard the sermon, that you've put your hope in other things. You know Jesus, but put your hope in other things. And I would just encourage you to come back to Jesus. Put your hope in the only one who can truly bring hope in the midst of your circumstances. So we're going to sing and. uh one more time, I'm going to embarrass Brian. So Brian, come on out here. Let's clap for Brian. So for those of you who uh, may not have ever even seen Brian, because he's usually up there in the booth, he is our uh, sound guy. He's on staff here. Uh, I say he is the most talented sound guy in the history of the free world. Uh, yeah. Not just because of the way he does sound, but uh, apparently God's given him quite a singing voice as well. Um, so we're going to close the song with the song that we opened with. Uh, and I just want to encourage you to let the words of this song just be the anthem of your heart as you walk out of this place. So if you will stand, Brian is going to lead us in Revive Me.
I told you he was pretty talented. Hey, uh, I just want to encourage you to let that be the anthem of your heart, but I do want to give you just one more word before you go out. I do not want you to leave here uh, thinking that what I just taught was simple. There is nothing simple about it. If you read that psalm, David is fighting for hope. He is saying to himself over and over, actually, if you read the Psalms, this is the story of David's life. He is fighting for hope. You have to fight for this. It's not as easy as throwing a switch. It's not as easy as giving you a a Bible verse. And I don't want you to leave here hearing that. What I want to encourage you to as your pastor and as your friend is fight for hope. Just fight for hope because the Lord wants to give it to you. Lord, I just pray as we go from this place, I just pray that you would uh, send us with your hope. I pray that we would uh, hear the words, revive me, revive me with the joy that you bring, with the joy that you bring. I pray that that song would just resonate in the hearts of our people. I pray that as we navigate through this series, that we would be people of hope, regardless of the crap that we have to navigate through, would we be people of hope? Thank you for the truth of your word that in this world you're gonna have sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Thank you for the Easter story that tells us you have overcome death. May we walk out of that, this place with that truth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Be blessed, have a great Easter.